Hey, good evening. This is a little different podcast as I'm away this coming Saturday, so we're kind of shooting this on the evening, on a Wednesday night, kind of nice weather outside still, so uh, good evening. And I think last time we left off, we were talking about some ventures you and Wheel had in and around the house, and I don't think we covered off anywhere near all the stuff you guys might have got into, so uh, if you've got <laughs> anything else you can recall, like what was life like growing up back then, you know, especially during the war, because most of us never would have grown up during a war. Did it have yeah. any kind of change things you had to do or could do? Well, the, the war actually affected everybody. It didn't matter who, because if for no other reason but the shortage of um, enough food, uh, not even talking about the quality or lack thereof, uh, but we kind of grew into it. It didn't suddenly one day uh, everything was bad. It uh, the the regular German army was okay. When things started to go bad, that's when uh, when things got ugly. The, they got very strict. They got miserable. They got uh, vindictive. But uh, for us as kids, it wasn't so bad. And especially, well, we were too young to worry and old enough to enjoy life regardless and old enough to remember. And uh, oh, there are a lot of things that may not have might not have happened uh, had there not been a war, I don't know. It is just that uh, it had a big influence, and uh, after a, a little while, in the beginning when it broke out, uh, we started going back to school, and uh, it wasn't long after that, and uh, we get uh, the 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 big boys from the German army come in the school and trying to give us some lectures and. It's brainwashing, that's what it comes down to. And uh, we talk about that, but before we were halfway home, <laughs> we we forgot all about it. It, uh, uh, it really didn't personally affect us. What did both of us affect, Wiel uh, and, and myself, is the fact that Every so often, uh, my dad having a bakery and a store, every time people bought something in the store, they had to show a coupon, uh, actually hand in a coupon. And it got to the point where the coupons were more expensive than the item being sold. Uh, because uh, money, well, you could make it anywhere, but uh, it was worthless anyway. But coupons, you only have so many, and they kept a very strict eye on it because the Jews, for instance, did not get any coupons at all. That was their leverage on kind of flushing them out, let's say, that uh, hunger makes them uh, take risks and, ha, ah, we got you. That started in, I think it was around 1943 when they uh, started to realize that they bungled things up. But uh, we got all those coupons and there was for sugar, there is for candy, for cigarettes. Well, they didn't have cigarettes, but that imitation crap. Same as coffee. Uh, coffee were uh, roasted acorns. Uh, how can you believe in it? But you imagine that it tastes okay and you have no alternative. You drink it. But we came over and uh, want to go play? Yeah, but I got to do my coupons first. And Theo and I, well, my brother, uh, we had to glue the coupons. And you get 100 to a sheet. And you have to put that, that cheap glue that they supplied. We had to pay for, but nevertheless. Uh, we put that on and then we start putting the, the coupons on, but they were all different. They had different uh, lettering on it or uh, different colors. 
So you could sort them by color and then by by description. And uh, that had to be done because when my sister took those papers into the uh, oh uh, VVO it was called uh, food uh, distribution in wartime, literally translated. And uh, she had to take all those sheets in and they would give her for uh, uh, say for a thousand coupons, uh, she would get a, a, a bill like a piece of paper, like a check, more or less. And then when the wholesaler came in to bring the stuff that she ordered, she had to turn over those bills. So that's how they kept track of uh, who was getting what, and there was no getting away from it, uh, uh, except uh, smuggling and bartering. And uh, so we'll help me with uh, uh, pasting those bloody things on, and so we could get out and and capitalize on the time left at night to go and play and do whatever you be usually did, which was trying to stay under the radar, let us say. And uh, I remember. Uh, we, Will and I, we would go to Christian's, and that was a distant relative of Will's family somehow. And it was also two brothers, they were single and they were running the farm. And the teacher I had in school, living next door to us, was a brother of theirs, or of them. Anyway, we would go there at night, and uh, when when it well, before it got dark, we kind of sauntered home uh, from whatever we had been doing, and well, let's stop in there, and maybe we get a cup of coffee or maybe a cup of hot chocolate or something, and uh, maybe they have some stories. And sure enough, it never failed. They were terrific storytellers. And uh, we stop in there, oh, come on in, boys, come on in, and take a chair. You get these high-backed, uh, reed-covered uh, seats, and we put them uh, backwards in front of the stove. You had this pot-belly stove, and uh, there was a light bulb, I think it was 25 watt or something, because the hydro was scarce. and. Uh, expensive too, but uh, with those stoves, it had an advantage. If you open that big door in the front and you poke in it and put another piece of wood in, and uh, <laughs> those old farmers, they just kept on spitting because they chewed tobacco. And you, know, when you chew tobacco, you keep spitting. In fact, some some have a contest as who can spit the farthest. They didn't, but I mean, they sometimes would sit there and without making much of a movement, they spit in the fire and you hear a shh. And then the story comes up. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid. Yeah, I was about your age. And then they, about that area where we lived, that was uh, when I think just before I was born in the must have been part of the uh, the early 30s or the the end of the 20s when uh, they start they built the first road coming through the village connecting one village to the other the rest of the road was all dirt road and that didn't matter because uh, horse and cart would go through but cars was a different story but since nobody in the village had a car it's only for through traffic, so if somebody came from A and wanted to go to C, they come through B, and all they have to do is follow the paved road. And we were lucky we were living right at that road. But uh, they were telling about robbers, and uh, they were 
kind of plentiful. Not forget, don't forget we. Uh, that was in the beginning of the 40s, and uh, we just got out of the dirty 30s, as they call them, when it was poverty galore, and there was a lot of crime. People, you do funny things when you get hungry and there is no food. So uh, the crime there, the crime rate was high. There's a great big area, there's all farms, so there's a lot of land but very few people. And there's no street lights. I think our village had maybe three or four. And that was being very lucky. But there were stretches of kilometers and kilometers of absolutely no light at all. And during the war you were not to have a light on your bike. If you did, then you had to put a screen on. And you know where the miles show or the kilometers on your counter in, in, in your vehicle, those that row of letters, mm -hmm. that's about the size of the opening that you were allowed to have in the black piece of cardboard that you put on your headlight. <coughs> because uh, when the war kind of got going and, and so did the British and they were coming back with plane loads of bombs to uh, here you get a taste of your own medicine. And they started to bomb the uh, industrial areas in Germany, which was not too far away from us. And we were not allowed to have any excessive light, like uh, an ordinary light on a bike. And, and even the, the windows had to be covered with black with tar paper, like we had to make frames and put tar paper on or turn the lights off. Because the planes could see that, and if you see enough light spots, then they could open the gate. And uh, well, there must be people there, so and we are close enough. And uh, so the light that we did have on the road was very little, and there were some people who had a lot of courage, and they. Uh, they advertised their 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 willingness. If you had to go somewhere and it was at night, or somebody happens to come on a bike or in a buggy, and they wanted to go, and those robbers they come out of the bush, because between us and the next village, there was a big uh, government forest, and they would hide in there. And if they figure there is something coming, then they prepare and. And they'll attack you, they kill you too. Anyway, uh, we were at the Christians Brothers and they started to tell stories about uh, what happened at the turn of the century and shortly after in that area. They were just beginning to develop it. There was nothing but swamp before. And in the 30s, instead of giving people so much money to survive on, because uh, there was no work, they said, well, okay, uh, the Dutch government said, we can do better by uh, creating uh, a project. And since our area was very swampy, we could maybe dig a canal, but they didn't have backhoes or anything, so it was all manpower. And they had a lot of people out of work, and they came from far away, because either you work or you don't get any money. Well, and then it's very simple to make up your mind. You go to work because you need money to buy food. Before the war, there was no coupons, so money would actually buy a loaf of bread or a bag of potatoes. And there were people who never had a shovel in their, in their hand in all their lives because they worked in offices in cities and towns and uh, and they had no choice. It was not, uh, oh, oh, oh yeah, oh no, no, you don't have to. No, everybody has to work, it doesn't matter who. You get the wheelbarrow and they would have a, a leather strap around the neck and they put that on the handles and they filled the wheelbarrow up 
with a shovel, with the dirt, and they run it over a board and built a dike. And they actually, foot by foot by foot, they built miles of that canal. And that was dubbed the Defense, Defense Canal, the De Defense uh, Canal. And they had actually some bunkers built into the dikes, reinforced concrete, because they thought that there might be a war coming. I think they already knew, but of course it wasn't official. And uh, that is where the people had to had to work, and uh, it it was horrible, really. Uh, I've seen it once. I was that was just before the war, and I was going with my brother to take some bread because. Uh, they they were short, and uh, you bring that over uh, tonight, like after after supper. And uh, so I pedaled along on my bike. I first learned to pedal the bike, and I saw that they were working. They were building the canal. They had the bridge in the road actually already in there before. You could see they had the a path where the traffic could go by, but there was no traffic like now. And uh, that canal uh, got to be a bit of a, a central point for Wheel and I because it got right through Wheel's dad's property. He had a bunch of farmland outside at the edge of the village, and they they dug that canal right through it. I think he got paid for it well too. But anyway, uh, uh, those Christian brothers, they, uh, they would uh, tell us stories and make your hair stand on end. And we have our chocolate milk or coffee or tea or whatever. And then we go home, scared out of the way because we both had a fairly good imagination. And of course, the two old farmers, they, they must have stood there laughing in their fist. <laughs> look, look at them go. They be scared and made away Henry. Henry was the other guy. One was chef and the other one was Henry. And they must have had a kick out of Will and I. And we were, I had a dream about that this week. Will and I would walk home from there, this from here to. Uh, a little bit past Bitwell, and uh, we have the arm around each other's neck, and we walk home. Well, my front door is before yours, so I go home, and I'll wait in the door, and as soon as you open the door, then you go in, and then I can go in. But we made sure that we brought each other home to because we were scared. And yet we went back for more time and again because it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, those uh, uh, nephews of those two farmers have been here in Tilsenburg several times uh, <clears throat> visiting. Uh, they were related. And uh, I remember one time. <laughs> Bill said it was on a Saturday morning, and apparently on Friday, while we were in school, and they had a bunch of pigs. It was time they had a big family, so it was time to kill a pig, which they did. And they were all big, you know. The lard was four inches thick, and. Uh, I went uh, real home. Yeah, he is over in the in the stable where the, where the cows are. And uh, you go and see him instead of them calling him. And so I walk right through, and you know I was in and out just like one of them, like Will was at our place. And uh, as I get just before you get to where the cows are all lined up. And there is this pig sitting on the ladder. They tie him up on the ladder. They put a, a piece of wood, like a, 
about three or four feet long, through the, the Yakelish muscle in the heels of the pig. The, the butcher would cut that open, and that muscle will hold the weight of the whole pig. And uh, there's the thing hanging, got open the, the fat from the inside already uh, uh, solid. And uh, I'm looking at it and I says, uh, when are you gonna, when you gotta cut it up and you're gonna smoke it? Because everybody had a chimney with a, a smoker kind of built in. And if you had to smoke meat, then you burn the trimmings from the orchard or something. And you burn that and the smoke would, uh, would smoke your meat. You don't have to go anywhere. Anyway, uh, I was looking at that pig and I saw two rows of shiny nipples and all of a sudden I, uh, I was, came to me. We had one customer in the pale, well, in, uh, just outside of the village there at the edge and uh, they had uh, three or four girls and they were all teenage and at the time it was customary that uh, you have a little pointy bag of candies you know like uh, uh, gumdrops or what have you or jelly beans and uh, you give that to the people where they have a kid or more that doesn't go to school yet they always miss out on everything and uh, well, to entice the people, you know, to get them as a good customer, and you you give that to them. And we had this tricycle, like two wheels with the with the bread in between in the front, and then the seat in the back with the one wheel in the back. And in the front there was a little box where we put the rusks and uh, sometimes a few groceries that people ordered. And in it, I also carried those little pointy bags with candies. As, and the problem was that you, we knew, like Ria, my sister, knew how many people had uh, preschool kids. And she would make that many little baggies of candies. And we knew which one is which. So, but I always ended up being short, a baggy, and I found out soon enough that those girls were, as I brought the bread to the front door, they came out at the back from the, the barn or the stable, and they would steal a bag of candies, and I saw them once, and that's what went through my mind when I saw that pig hanging there, and uh, I said to Will, you got the straight edge from your dad, you know, the straight edge razor. <laughs> I said, I like to cut those nipples off. You don't eat them anyway. No, what do you want to do with them? So I told him what my plan was. I was going to make these gumdrops out of it covered in sugar. I would soak them for an hour or so in a cup of water and then fish them out and then roll them and roll them and roll them in, in sugar, put them in the baggie and then I put that on top and uh, make sure that was on top by the time I got to Van den Berg. Van den Berg was the guy that had those girls. And uh, sure enough, this one time, I, I took all the, the nipples off with that razor and uh, uh, did what I was planning and put the baggie on the top. And as I walked up and I looked sideways, and I could, I could almost, almost smell them. And oh boy, they're coming for the candies. And sure enough, they did come. And as I'm handing the bread and the stuff to the mother who was at the door, they were lifting the lid. There was a, a wooden lid in the front. They lift that up and then take the first baggie and then sneak to the barn and they go and eat the candies. And uh, when I come back, I. I went on the bike and I was a little bit down the road and I I looked in there, I couldn't help it, I had to see 
which one they took is <laughs> they took the right one and I was happy as hell I thought this time I got them that's the last time they got that steel candies and uh, a few days later my dad calls me in the bakery well Leah said uh, dad wants to see you and it was never a good thing when when she told me to come in the bakery so I went in there and what did you do last week I said well what did I do uh, but uh, they, didn't you bring the little bread on that road there in the bill? I said, yeah, I did. And uh, you remember uh, bringing bread to Van den Berg? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I just go by each one as the order is on the sheet with whatever they, they wanted. Because you can't remember them all. And uh, and I could tell he had trouble being stern because inside he, <laughs> he was laughing, but uh, he always said, when I said, I sooner lose a thousand bucks than a good customer. And not only was Van den Berg a good customer, but he had a couple of brothers who had farms there. And he had other relatives. And that means if you lose one, you lose three or four more. So. That cost you a fortune. And uh, he said, what, uh, what did you do with the, with the candies? I said, well, they were in the front and whenever, but from the back, they didn't have little kids, so I didn't have any candies. But I think they wanted some husks, and I bought the bread. And, uh, and then did you give any candies? I said, no, I didn't give them any candies. Why should I? I know that. They are not on the list for little kids preschoolers, so I didn't give them any candies. Then how come that those girls got candies that they thought was candies, but they were pig nipples? And I couldn't, I couldn't help. I had to laugh at that moment. I, it was too much, and I started to laugh. And then my dad kind of laughed. Yeah, he says you may think it's funny. He was trying. So so hard to remain stirred, <laughs> but uh, in the end it didn't matter. He said, do you know that I stand to lose a lot of money? And Van den Berg was in here and I saw him. Leah came to get me out of the bakery and he told me what happened. And uh, I know they are not supposed to have candies, but you don't do a thing like that. I said, well, time and again. At the end, there is the family, the last one on that road, where they have preschool children. And I don't have candies for them because if you get ten baggage, you have ten kids. And these girls, they didn't, I didn't give it to them. They stole it. Well, yeah, but he was quite upset about it. And either you're going to ask for forgiveness. That's how we put it in Dutch, of course. Because anything short of that, and it's not going to fly. And we are going to pay, pay for it. He says, we may be the baker in the village, but they're the customers. They're the ones that put bread on our table. He says, now you get the bike and go to Van den Berg and offer your, your regrets. You say that you're sorry. And well, I had no 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 choice but to to do what I was told. <laughs> Mind you, on the way home, I, I still had to laugh because I saw those girls, and I think they wanted to be close enough to actually hear me say that I was sorry. But at the same time, I thought I had the best deal because I had them at you on pig nipples. <laughs> that was uh, that was <laughs> that was quite an experience. And uh, but there are so many things that that just stands stands out in my mind because uh, I got a, <laughs> I got a kick out of that. A anything like that. Uh,
uh, it. Well, you mentioned that uh, on Wheels' property there was the canal. Uh, oh yeah, that yeah. dish. Did you guys spend any time at the canal? Any anything? Oh like that? well, the canal took an uh, like a, an offset mm -hmm. in in their land because for some reason it had to flow through, but uh, it was too far over one way, and they got to kind of navigate between the different properties, and they tried to put the canal more or less where the, the, the fence lines are for the different properties, so that you don't cut too much through anyone's property and take too much. Right. So you get a bit from this one and a bit from that one. Anyway, that offset was... Is that where the uh, girls were uh, swimming? You borrowed their clothes on? Uh, they, well, we were, they had calves, you know, like uh, before they have been bred, they don't give any milk, so they don't need mil milking, but uh, after they have been bred, then you milk them on a daily basis. And so those calves, it is a long ways away from home, and for a calf it don't matter, but every once in a while, not every day, but a couple of times a week, we go on the bike and we get a couple of pails of water each, and then put them in the trough. There was a trough on the edge of the pasture, and there was a big heather field too. And uh, it was all heather around there. And uh, we fill up that, that trough for the calves to drink out of, and they would be grazing. There was lots of lush grass. And uh, so this one time we went up there, I think it was on a Saturday afternoon. I'm not sure, but I, I think that's what it was. It feels like Saturday afternoon. Anyway, we go up there and we heard voices. And this is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, uh, there were no houses anywhere to be seen. There's a dirt road, and it's not even a road. It's a, well, you can go there with a horse. Or on a bike, there was a path for a bicycle. And that's how we got there, and we got off the bike. Did you hear that? It sounds like girl voices. Yeah. So we slowly we get to the corner, we look around, and there's these heads bobbing out of the water. And they were quite loud. The closer we got, the louder it got. And on the dike, there's some bushes were growing there, and we saw a pile of clothes stuck under the one bush. Yeah. yeah, I think you reviewed that last week. And that's where, yeah, yeah, yeah that's where, <laughs> and a, a lot of people used to go there because, mm -hmm. like, uh, 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 swimming. Was there swimming or big swimming hole there then? Well, it was, yeah, uh, well, you could, I could stand in uh, if I was to stand in it, it would actually be, I would just be underwater. Mm -hmm. And for real it didn't matter because he could swim. But uh, in, in the beginning of the war, well in the beginning, I forget when it, when it was, but it was one of those V1s or V2s that the Germans were firing to Britain, those rockets, and they would come over. And it, boom, 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 boom. You could tell the difference between the one and the other. And one malfunctioned, and it, it went into the forest. And it blew one hell of a hole in that forest. And the water table being high, it didn't take long. And there was uh, a man-made pond. And it was big enough, it must have been, uh, at least at least 50 feet across. And uh, so the, when the water was in there and it started to settle, it, came, it got to be nice and clear. And uh, we can go swimming. And that's where we went, where everybody could go swimming. The canal was, well, more public. And uh, I went there swimming one time. I didn't have a swimsuit, but my sister made one. My sister Annie, she was pretty handy with a needle and thread. And uh, I wore that 
and I tried to swim and I thought well it's simple enough everybody was going in the water and wading and I slipped off a, a root or something at the edge and all of a sudden it was deeper and I went down the water and panicked and then I got up and I went down again and when I got back up again these guys that they were hiding in the forest from the Germans, they had dugouts in the like little shelters that they built mm -hmm. in the forest. You never find them. You could walk by them and never see them. Anyway, they they came from the north country, from where they better know how to swim, and they uh, dragged me out and pumped the water out of me, and I put my clothes under the under the the elastic on. On the, on the baggage thing on the back of the bike and I went home and that was the last time I went to that swimming hole and uh, I've been at the lakes, different lakes here and every time I, the water gets to my armpits I panic and I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to swim like everybody else and I, but every time I go in the water, when we went to Lake Simcoe I had the same thing. I always had to sit out the fun and sit the edge of the water because I would panic. I knew it. That's why I can't swim. But Bill could swim and uh, he would go for a swim uh, and he didn't need to worry about his clothes because I was there. Uh, yeah, that was that was a nice time. We. Uh, Uh, and especially in the middle of nowhere, like there's well the neighbors, uh, you could go from here to Broadway, you don't even from here to Tilson Ave, and there is not a bloody house to be seen, nothing. Uh, well, there was the barn was there that, but that's just a barn in the field, where they put the hay or the straw uh, from the harvest and put it in there for the calves and the cattle, whatever they were running there. Uh, but otherwise it was very desolate. Yeah, I I always liked it there. We used to lie in the heather on our back and uh, look up and yeah, uh, we, well, uh, when, when I go up I'm going to do this and we were making all kinds of plans and not one single one of them ever materialized. <laughs> uh, he went to Australia and I went to Canada and that was that was the end of all the plans. But uh, I remember also that across the road, like in, next to next to our little garden that we had left over after the the province was done expropriating, there was a little piece of grass, like uh, maybe 20 feet by by 50 or so. And uh, every morning, a truck would come from the village next to ours, but it was quite a ways away. But that is where they were not liberated yet. We were, but they weren't. And they would pick up the wounded and the dead, and they bring them over, and then the dead would be brought to the cemetery where they have military cemetery. And uh, the wounded would be taken care of. And they had a, a temporary hospital, uh, real dead, as I told you, I think. They had a café, like a mm -hmm. uh, roadside café. Then they sold beer and uh, liquor and stuff. And that was a big open area. And they used that, British Army used that. And they had a couple of doctors there to tend to the wounded that come in. And if they had one that was dead, they put that on that little piece of grass on the stretcher and they put a blanket over it. But if they had wounded ones, sometimes they had to 
run in to see if the door was open so they could get in because at six, seven o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. it was not always, not always a given that they could get in. Certainly not around that time. And uh, when my sister went to trade, yeah, she took some eggs and bring it to the soldiers and they would give her a carton of cigarettes, like 10 packages, like 200 cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, with the sailor head on the players. I remember that sailor head. And uh, so Will and I, we would go to Will Dad's chicken coop and we get some eggs out. We got it for free, of course, we just stole it. And then we go to the soldiers and we try to get some cigarettes. And for the same number of eggs, we only get one or two uh, a package of cigarettes. Well, my sister gets a whole carton, but at that time, I didn't understand the reason. You know, that, that's ridiculous. And uh, the stupid buggers. Uh, so we were upset about it. Well, the hell with this. So we knew, we were always up early. There was too much living to be done. And we knew that if they brought in supplies for the soldiers in that air, in our village, uh, that uh, they had cigarettes and whatever other stuff, supplies, uh, on the stretcher. They bring it in on the stretcher with the same truck, everything the same. And they would hand them out and they could walk them by there on their way to the to the canteen where they get their breakfast. I said, well, we got to watch this because as soon as the stressor comes in, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to take a carton of cigarettes off and they don't cost any eggs. We don't need to worry about anything. And then we run behind our house and then we go in the, in the back where my dad stored the briquettes for the oven and then where we hide them. And then every so often we can take it back out. Well, I'll be the watch. Will said, I, I'll watch out, and when I say, uh, okay, and then you can go for it. But as long as I don't say anything, don't go for it, because I'm not sure that nobody is watching. And so uh, we're standing there uh, well, with a kid's mind, everything is clear. And he said, okay. And I went down there on my haunches, and I went lift up the the corner of that blanket and I grabbed in there and the, the, no cigarettes and then I looked up and there is a dead soldier with half his face missing mm. and that was enough to make us quit smoking. Uh, we never tried to, <laughs> we had to go back to the check and go yeah, yeah. To, to get some more cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, another thing, we didn't, we all had septic tanks, but no weeping bed or anything. Nobody had enough land to put in a weeping bed. So, when, uh, but they didn't flush. Whatever went in was solid. Well, except, of course, when they go number one, that flushes in there too. And uh, when that tank gets full, it was a concrete tank, then the farmer would my dad would contact the farmer who has this big wooden crate, was aired watertight, on the back of his two-wheel cart, big horse-drawn cart. And he had a pump on it. And he would take the lid off that septic tank, put the pump in it, and then he had a, a sleeve from an, a tube, from a car tube. And it was on the pump on the top, and the other end was hanging in that that big crate on the on the guard. And then he would start pumping and pumping and out it comes and and you could see the 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 that tube flopping back and forth with all the shit coming through there. Uh, and and after that of course that was spread out on the field. It was fertilizer. And uh, so they were pumping hours out and it was empty, it was all gone, it was all sitting. That tank on the back, that wooden tank, was big enough 
to hold a full septic tank. Mm -hmm. And he would just get the leash on the horse and, okay, let's go. And he would get off the driveway and down the road to the farm, to the farmer's field where he had to spread it. Mm -hmm. And it's just where five roads come together where we lived. And uh, Will said, you know, he, he had a string like a piece of binder twine on the lever that was on the valve on the back. And uh, when, when the cap comes out of the tank, it would hit this plate, it was a curved plate, and hit that and spread it out so it would not go in one spot, but it would spread out over four or five feet width and with the, the gravity fed. And Will said, when when he gets into uh, when he gets to the to the intersection there, and got uh, there was a guy's name sitting on the front of the car and uh, steering the horse, and uh, he he doesn't see anything. He says, and then I have a stick, and I'm gonna push that handle up. And then the shit is going to fly all over the road here. And he's going to have to come up and he's going to have to close and he can't do anything. So big dreams. And, but uh, God was not born yesterday. So he kind of hurled us, I think. And just as Will is aiming with his stick with a little fork on it for that lever to push it open, God pulled on that rope. And the thing opened up a half a second before we expected it. And we didn't have toilet paper at the time. So we had newspaper or the uh, any, any kind of little magazine. And you take those papers out to size. And then it was my job also to uh, put them on a string with a needle and thread. And you hang them on a nail in the toilet. and. Uh, uh, and, and that's what we used. Uh, well, there was no toilet paper. And uh, so <laughs> we had what they call a guide, and everybody every week got that guide that was uh, to give the news about the church and, uh, and religion in general of that diocese and it came out from the diocese and I had to rip that in half and then put them on the strike. But anyway, one of them came out, <laughs> we had blonde hair, as blonde as they come, and he had crap hanging over his ears and he wore glasses <laughs> and he had a piece of that, that guy, Carl Rogitz, it was called, and it was stuck <laughs> to the left glass of it. <laughs> He looked at me. I, I couldn't help but laugh. I shouldn't have a It was really not funny for him, but for for me it was. But well, he got all cleaned up in half an hour at home. And needless to say, of course, we never tried that again. Yeah, it uh, it's it's hard to describe if you haven't. If you haven't seen anything like it, it's hard to imagine what life was like. It, uh, uh, we had, we were so rich, and our riches was the fact that we were poor. We had no toys, but we were forced to use our imagination. You want to play? The whole village was our playground. But if you want to have something to play with, you come up with the idea, because uh, at St. Nicholas, you, I would get a new pair of socks or a new set of underwear, which I could get anyway, but you kind of have to get the rest and things wear out. But toys, no, no, that was not like nowadays. There's, uh, no, life was a little bit different then, and I cherish the memories. Uh, and I was fortunate that 
uh, that I had built for a friend. Because between the two of us, we never had a dull moment. Never. I, it just like luck would have it, it was following us around. Remember, the British army had moved on to uh, to go and conquer the forest between our village and the one south of us. And the Germans had holed up in there and it was one hell of a battle. And uh, they, when they conquered that and they went farther and then uh, another mile or two and they were into Germany and they had crates of hand grenades and they they use them, they put so many on the belt when they go on patrol, I guess, or whatever. But uh, they all, but some crate was left behind in the barn. And well, that was too much of a temptation, so uh, we hid it. And uh, we took a couple out because we heard that you could go fishing with the hand grenade, and of course. Fishing rod was out, and uh, these fishing hooks were out. We didn't have anything fancy like that, and uh, and if you had to buy it, that was out because we didn't have any money. So we could go fishing with the hand grenade. The guy had told he was about 18 or 20 years old, and uh, he said you throw the hand grenade in the water, and it will blow up their, their uh, swimming bladder or whatever. I think it must have, I, I don't think it, it blew up the swimming bladder. I think what happened is the, the, the blow, the blast of the hand grenade underwater must have given such a, a shock wave that it stunned them and they came floating to the top and we had a net for catching butterflies. And we used that and we scooped uh, the fish out. Now mind you, they didn't taste too good because there was murky swamp water and that's where the fish lived. And that taste goes into the, the meat of the fish, but we caught it ourselves and that was a big thing. So, but it didn't take long and we were out of hand grenades. So, but then we knew more or less, and there was other grenades and they they looked like green, light green spaghetti. And they came in bunches, I would say about five, four or five inches diameter and at least a foot long. And they put the grenade on the top and then they shove it in the cannon and then they pull the lever and there goes the grenade. And uh, they, before they fired it, they had to take the cap of the detonator in the front and along a field they had a bunch of these grenades piled up but the cannon had been moved and they left the, the ammo but they moved the cannon to the front where they had and the supply line would bring you know the logistics so they would bring in the new the new shells and new grenades and I remember taking the couple of those caps off because they had holes on them to hold it on the on the front of the grenade with little wires mm -hmm. because if you touch that pin when that thing blows up uh, they don't even have mince meat to, to give it a name and uh, so uh, I took a couple of them off and then after when I heard I didn't know that that pin if you hit it, that thing is going to go off. And, uh, but nothing ever happened. They picked it all, it, they all cleared it up. I think there was some kind of a, a government institution that went around to pick up all the leftover ammo and stuff. Uh, and I hope they put a cap on that. But, uh, That uh, that's how we went 
we went fishing. The things we did. And if I, if my grandson had done a thing like that when they were my age then, I don't know what I would have done, but I, I would never, I would never be able to. Well, that's ridiculous. You don't take uh, risks like that. You know that, that's dangerous. You know you can, uh, you can blow up a whole bloody house. But those grenades, they're not, not meek by any definition. I'm gonna guess your dad never knew about you hunting or fishing with grenades. Then. No, but we never did that at home. Uh, you know, we were gone far enough. There was also fish in the canal too. Uh, they came out of the whatever they had where the swamp used to be. That the that canal was actually meant to to get rid of the water in in the pail. And uh, the pail is E E L. That is an area like a big swampy area. And they got that name centuries ago. And uh, that was uh, that was a rough. In the in the pail, I got the guy that I got to know via internet years ago, and he wrote a book about they found. A horse with the the skeleton that is of a horse with the 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 rider still on it, and he had a golden helmet on, and the golden helmet was just below the murk that uh, the bog, and when the water started to go down, it was just like there was a golden helmet lying in the field, but. Uh, it was swampy, so nobody went to walk up there. But somehow they managed to go up there. And then they found out there was a Roman soldier, and that helmet was from the Roman times. Wow. And uh, where Mom comes from, the capital in her province was uh, created Maastricht, as very well known. They had the Treaty of Maastricht, and. Uh, that was uh, created by the Roman Empire, and that soldier that uh, on horseback, he because in that swamp, you go there and solid gone. Well, there's the water; it splashes around, but then you get to this swampy spot, and there's no getting out because you get bogged down, and the horse starts to sink, and he is sitting on it, and. A thousand years later, he's still sitting by his bones, still sitting on it, and uh, that they kind of figured out which was which from that helmet. Actually, was a, a dead giveaway of its history. And the man was going to send me that book, but uh, we didn't have PayPal. I didn't know about any. Options. I wasn't gonna go there to pay for it. So, uh, no, very interesting. I'm looking at the time, and we're almost done here. So, oh, this well, sounds like uh, a good spot to kind of put a pin into it before we. Yeah. More, well, so. uh, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to lie down and let my memories go wild. I, uh, it's funny that. Not this past night, but the night before, and I had the weirdest but most beautiful dream you could wish for. Well, I was—I uh, uh, dreamt that that the phone went and uh, Will was on the phone, and he says, "Is it all right if I stop in?" I said, "But uh, you're in Australia, and I'm in Canada. I hope you you know that." Remember, we went our own ways, yeah. But I came to Canada. I want to come and see you. I had some free time, and I said, "Well, that's fine. I'll come and pick you up." No, you don't have to. Uh, 
uh, I'll get they have all kinds of cars and vehicles here. I'll rent one. He said it's only for a few days or however long you will have me. I said okay and I'll make sure the coffee is ready. And the next thing I know I'm watching through the window and here's this big black limousine coming down the road and well, you see traffic going by all the time. But it slowed down and then it pulled in our driveway. And that bloody driveway with, the, with our van sitting near the grass was barely long enough for that big automobile that he drove. And Will comes out of it and he, he walked just like his dad. He reminded me his face, his manners, his everything. It was just like his dad. The glasses and everything. And uh, and in ball too. <laughs> he uh, he comes walking up here and uh, I just couldn't believe my eye, but what uh, what a beautiful moment it was. I said, Come on in, come on in. Yeah, he said I could handle a beer just about now. I said, Well I'm sorry I don't have any beer in the house. You don't have any beer in the house? I said, no, I don't. I said, but there's pubs in town. I said, we could go and have one uptown. He said, well, let's walk up there because we got so much to talk about. So we were, we were walking here, uh, kind of one behind the other sideways. We got to the sidewalk. We started to walk side by side, talking a mile a minute each. And just like the days when we came off to Christian's place to go home, scared us out. And here is two grown men with the arm around each other's neck. And we were talking up a storm and laughing and oh, we had the greatest of times. And we went up to the coffee culture. And he, he had seen that there was a coffee shop there at the corner. He says, do they sell beer? I said, I think so. But they were still locked, they closed. They uh, had nothing to do with COVID. I wasn't even thinking about COVID. And, and I not thinking about Nectar either. It was coffee culture. So we went up there and that's where we had a great time. And uh, I, uh, I think he stayed he stayed a couple of three days and he wanted to go on to see relatives in Whitby. They are from, I, I know them, but I knew the Badoos, the Ted's family. Yeah. So, uh, but that somehow I woke up and, but that moment that we walked from, from just about there yeah. to the coffee culture and it felt so good. I. Beautiful feeling. Nice dream. Nice dream. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't mind another one like that. It, uh, <laughs> it, see, now, after all these years, that is what, 70 years ago, more than that. And it is still in my memory as, as if it all happened yesterday. And, uh, to get a dream, a fragment of what really happened back then and have it woven into into a dream that you get here. Maybe I had better <laughs> borrow the book of 10,000 dreams explained because it might be in there somewhere. Yeah, you you never know. When I was your age, I could have never, ever thought that the rest of my life would be just about as exciting as the previous part because I've always enjoyed it, uh, or mostly I've had my periods where it was nothing to write home about, which I elected to do, don't write home about. But, uh, <laughs> yeah.
well, I think good spot to end it. We'll uh, we'll say good night and we'll talk to everyone uh, soon. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks for for uh, making this possible because uh, of course I uh, your benevolence makes it possible for me. But uh, I I already warned Chris that uh, uh, this week you were going up north and uh, there would be no podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, he, he sent me an email this week and said that, you sent me an email once about that fishing with the hand grenades and then I thought at the end I better bring that in because yeah. he kind of expects that. Yeah. He doesn't expect the podcast there this weekend go. because it's not supposed to happen. Yeah, well, this, this podcast is for Chris, well, dedicated to Chris then. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> okay, take care.